First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 is uh, where we'll begin in just a moment. Uh, a few years ago, a friend of ours uh, brought her girls over to our house to hang out with our girls. And before mom left her girls, she turned to them, and with a mother's tone, she said, girls, remember who you are. Now, what she meant by that was, you know, watch your behavior, be polite, be kind, but the motivation for that good behavior was remember who you are, remember whose name you bear, remember who raised you, remember who you got to come home to, remember who you are, that remembering should impact the way you behave. Uh, When I it's stuck in my mind when she said that because I've never said that to my girls. When I drop them off places, I say, hey, don't commit a felony. No vaping, preferably. No, you know, things like that. Uh, but this was really profound and great wisdom. Girls, remember who you are. In the book of First Timothy, we've been studying a church in a city called Ephesus, and it's a church that has forgotten who they are. The people forgot they're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose again. They've forgotten that the word of God is life-giving. They've forgotten that legalism is dead. They've forgotten what godly leadership looks like. And as a result, this church is a hot mess. They fight Timothy, their leader. They fight each other. They have no public witness except for a negative one. They do not pray. They do not worship as they should. They do not share the gospel as they should. They are a church that has forgotten who they are. That happens to churches sometimes. It happens to Christians sometimes that we forget who we are in Christ. And the results of our spiritual amnesia are always devastating. When we forget who we are, we will quickly either slide into a legalism that destroys the gospel by saying Jesus is not enough, or we might slide into a liberalism that destroys the gospel by saying Jesus is not necessary, or we might slide into a spiritual apathy that destroys the gospel by only pulling Jesus off the shelf in moments of crisis, and only then it's just to blame him for things going haywire. So Christian, I wonder this morning, do you remember who you are? Do you remember whose name you bear? Do you remember the one who bought you at such a high price, who laid down his life for you? Do you remember the one who dwells in you to lead you into truth and to guide you in your power over sin? Do you remember who you are? So Paul wrote this letter to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus in order to remind them who they are and in so doing, call them to godly living. If you want to be an expert on 1 Timothy, do you know how you can tell if you're studying Timothy correctly? Here's how you know. It affects the way you live. This letter is behavior-oriented. Paul's not so concerned with theology. There's certainly theology in it, theology that informs this behavior. But first and foremost, we study this letter right when it results in godly living. This letter in general, our passage today, calls us to live like Jesus Christ. And so my purpose in preaching this passage today is to call us as a church, to call us as people 
to the kind of godly living that displays the gospel. To do this, I want to show you in our passage two ways that Christian people ought to conduct themselves. And in understanding this, it gives us direction for the way we lead godly lives. I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we pick up in verse 14. And I want you just to imagine that there are not chapter divisions or verse divisions because uh, that's not how Paul wrote it. Uh, We're going to read from verse 14 all the way to chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says this. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Let me show you in this passage two ways Christian people are to conduct themselves. When Christians remember who they are, how will we live? First, if you're taking notes, is this, we will live so as to display God's gospel. How do we conduct ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ? We live so as to display God's gospel. And this last section of chapter 3 gives us insight into this. So here at the end of chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16, they are the epicenter of the book. Physically, they are right in the middle of this letter. And thematically... What Paul says here about how we live and about the nature of the gospel, it sits right at the center point. This is the main theme of Paul's letter to Timothy and the church in Ephesus. His message has to be heard by the church whether or not he's present. And so he says, this is why I'm writing to you. I love the context details we pick up from verses 14 and 15. I'm writing, verse 15, so that in case I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So if you ever find yourself on Jeopardy and the category is 1 Timothy. And the clue is, this is the reason Paul wrote 1 Timothy. You would reference verse 15. He wrote it so that God's people would know how to conduct themselves in God's household. This is the whole purpose of the letter. Everything is informed by Paul's purpose here in verse 15. So again, Paul's not primarily concerned with how people believe, though belief and theology are important. Again, his primary concern is behavior, that God's people live in godly ways. So it's essential. It's essential that God's people lead godly lives. Sometimes we feel perhaps that being saved by grace means that behavior isn't that big of a deal. But Paul says just the opposite here. We're saved by grace so that we are free to live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And why is it so important for Christians to live godly lives? Well, Paul answers that question in the second half of verse 15. Look at it with me. He says, if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the, tr- the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Why is it important that we live godly lives? Because the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's a big deal. Paul uses two architectural terms to describe the church's relationship to the truth of God. First, he says we are a pillar. And a pillar is frequently used in Scripture to describe God's presence. Think about Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. It says this. It says, By day the Lord went ahead of his people in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. Pillars are not just support structures. They are witnesses in the biblical metaphor. Uh, Paul uses the same word in Galatians 2.9 to refer to the key leaders of the early church. James, Peter, and John are called pillars. They are witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ. A second architectural term that Paul uses is the word foundation. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the term foundation, just like you think about the foundation of your home or any building, it signifies firmness and steadiness. And together, these terms depict the church as existing in order to give a powerful witness to the gospel and to be a steadfast foundation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hold to the gospel. We share the gospel. Many times, when we think about our relationship with the truth, this idea of us being pillar and foundation of the truth, we feel it's our need to protect the truth from corruption. And indeed, that is part of the function of the church. We have to protect the gospel. Paul fights for the gospel in this letter. But if we are merely foundations of support and not pillars of witness, we've not done what God has put us here to do. You see, the truth is not some fragile little being that has to be protected by us in order to be preserved. It is an offensive weapon against an enemy of darkness. It is robust in its power to bring dead people to life, to change lives forever for those who hear the truth and believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation. The church is not merely the protector or the guardian. We are the advancers of the truth of Jesus Christ inasmuch as we are witnesses to his glory in a world that has to hear this. So now is the part where you start to ask, hey, all right, tell me what I've got to do. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. We're to live godly lives. Tell me how. How do I crank up my godliness to 11? Uh, Give me some stuff to do so I can get this right. And Paul answers you in verse 16. But he answers not by telling you what you need to do. He answers by telling us what Christ has done. Look at what he says in verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Paul, what do I got to do to be godly? He gives you six lines 
in verse 16, and not one of them is about you. Everyone is about Christ. The mystery of godliness is great. It's a gift from him. It's given to us. Must we change our behavior, do things to live in righteousness? Absolutely. But godliness is a result of God's sanctifying, saving work in us. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled about verse 16. A lot of people have a lot of different ideas about how to make sense of it. It, It's a challenging verse to be sure. But here's just a couple of tidbits of information that we can say with confidence we know about verse 16. One, um, it's, it's a hymn. Paul has imported lyrics from a hymn, it would seem, uh, in, into verse 16 to help inform us on the mystery of godliness. Second, it's six lines, and each of those six lines, they, they can be paired off in couplets. So lines one and two go together, and lines three and four go together, lines five and six go together. And then in each of those couplets, you're going to find opposing nouns. Here's what I mean. Look at the first line. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the spirit. So we have opposing nouns, body and spirit. When I say opposing, I don't mean they're in conflict with each other. I just mean they're opposites. So verse line one, he appears in a body. Line two, vindicated by the spirit. In lines three and four, it's angels in nations. Lines uh, five and six, it's the world and glory. So these things show us a full realm of the glory and the action of Jesus Christ. So how does this song inform our godliness? Here's a couple of things I think that this song helps us with. First of all, it tells us that godliness is Christ-centered. If you're going to be a godly woman, if you're going to be a godly man, you're going to live a life that is Christ-centered. Every line of this song focuses on Jesus Christ. It reveals the mystery of godliness, not by giving us secret tasks to do or some hidden deep knowledge that was before unavailable to people. It shows us godliness by pointing us to Christ. If you're going to live a godly life, you're going to live with your eyes anchored to Jesus Christ. Uh, Second, it tells us that godliness is hope-focused. The hymn begins with the humanity of Jesus. He appeared in a body, but it ends with his vindication. This tells us that the human experience doesn't end in weakness and suffering and death, but it ends in life and glory. Our experience is hope-focused. Third, godliness is gospel-sharing. How do I live a godly life? You share the gospel. In lines four and five, God's people are actually participants in what Paul describes of Jesus here. The church preaches Christ among the nations so that the world may believe. That's That's what we do. How can we measure our godliness? Godliness is Christ-centered. It is hope-focused. It is gospel-sharing. Without any of those things, we are not tracking in the way that Christ desires us to track or to grow in our faith. This is how we display the gospel. This is how we live as witnesses to the truth, as foundations for the truth of the living God. Christ-centered, hope-focused, gospel-sharing. 
sharing. It's important that we get two things in the right order. It's important that we get faith and works in the right order. If we get those reversed so that our works are what comes first in order to lead us to approval by Jesus Christ, approval by God, then we have made a devastating error. That's the problem here with the church in Ephesus. The false teachers have taken away grace. They have removed faith. They have shipwrecked their own faith. And in so doing, they've laid all of these laws and and man-made regulations on top of the church of Jesus Christ to their own destruction. But what you've got to understand is that your right behavior or your moral behavior will never be an adequate substitute for faith in Jesus Christ. And yet that's the metric that so many people in our world measure their lives by. Am I a good person? Am I good to my pets? Am I good to the environment? Am I good to my neighbor? Do I pay my taxes? Am I a veteran? Am I civic-minded? There's all these values that we've said inform a person's moral fiber and ultimately their eternal standing. But that's not Christianity. That's like some superstitious cultural karma. I'll do good to the world and the world will do good to me. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not be as moral as you can and then God will reward you at the end of your days. That's not it at all. Our morality, apart from faith in Christ, only serves to condemn us. The good news is that there's a better way. That faith comes first. When you believe, everything changes. Right behavior is not what saves us, it's faith. And so here's the story. The story is that God came to us in the person of Jesus. He's born of a virgin, which tells us Jesus is no mere man. He's fully God and fully man at the same time. His life was sinless, but he died in our place for our sins so we could be sinless before God. Three days later, he rose from the dead just as he promised. And when you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, and when you trust that his death and resurrection are for you, then and only then are you saved from your sin forever and ever. That's the beautiful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your salvation comes not through your moral effort because you and I fail at that every time. Your salvation is a gift from God who sent his son to die in your place for your sin. Christian, this passage begs a question of us. The question is, does your life display the gospel? Are you living your life in such a way as to display the gospel of Jesus Christ? Hey, graduating seniors, I'm going to pick on you for a little bit longer. Look, you've got to display the gospel of Jesus Christ on your college campus. Five minutes into your college career, and you might just be in the most hostile environment you have ever been in as a representative of Jesus Christ. And it will not let up. It will only intensify. The more people you meet, the more classes you take, the more experiences you have, you've got to count the cost to be a follower of Jesus Christ on your college campus. And so a campus ministry and a local church are going to be vital to your growth and encouragement. And understand that God is sending you to your college campus in order to invade that campus with the gospel. You're a pillar and foundation of the truth of the living God. 
you're an answer to someone else's prayer. Someone somewhere is saying, God, introduce my kid to the gospel. Bring them to you, and you're the answer to that prayer. You've got to display the gospel with your life, and so it is with all of us. Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness so that we would be gospel agents. Our church is a pillar and foundation of the truth of God in as much as we share the story of Jesus Christ in our living and our speaking. How should we live? We should live to display God's gospel to the world around us. Second way followers of Jesus Christ live, Paul tells us this, beware of teaching that hides God's goodness. End of chapter 3, high elevated language, focus on Christ and the gospel. Beginning of chapter 4, a warning. Paul gets down in the muck with the false teachers to call out their savagery, to call out their evil, and to direct God's people again towards Christ. So Paul's just given us this beautiful vision of godly living. Now here comes the warning in verses 1 through 3, the beginning of verse 3. He describes this false teaching that's so rampant in the church. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, you know when Paul said later times, he wasn't skipping over the year he was in to the year we are in. Every time time in history where God's people have lived, we have lived in the later times. So in later times, Paul speaking to his audience immediately and to us as his audience as well, in those later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. As Paul says, these people are abandoning the faith, deceived by spirits, taught by demons. We tend to get a little squeamish, don't we? When we come across language like this, talking about demons and evil things and spirits. But when the content of their teaching is leading people away from the grace of Jesus Christ and from the hope and salvation that are found in him, then it is a teaching from hell. It's important to note here that the opposite of godliness in verse 1, the opposite of godliness is not ungodliness, The opposite of godliness is godlessness. This teaching comes from demons. Verse 2, Paul describes the teachers themselves. He says, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They're hypocritical liars. They espouse some form of spirituality, but in fact, they are hypocrites through and through. They do not love Christ, and they do not even have a conscience to feel guilt or conviction over the damage they are inflicting on God's people, or even the damage they're doing to the reputation of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, he describes some of the content of their teaching. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. It might be weird to think about that as a demonic teaching, abstaining people to, or teaching people to abstain from certain foods. And to be fair, look, if they were, if they were forbidding people from drinking seltzer, they might have a good argument. <laughs> so make sure you understand seltzer is disgusting in all its forms. And you will say, if you put a little flavoring in it, you have disgusting flavor is what you have.
But Paul describes the utter nonsense of their teaching compared to the gospel of Jesus Christ. After describing their nonsense, he gives the solution. In verse 3, look at it with me. They forbid uh, certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So in order to refute the teachers, what Paul does is he refers back to creation. He again takes us back to Genesis. We spent time in Genesis in chapter 2. Here at the beginning of chapter 4, we go back to Genesis again. So by denying marriage and denying certain foods, the false teachers are striking against the good things that God has created. So in verse 3, Paul says God's created these things to be received with thanksgiving. Everything in creation is good, except for seltzer and mosquitoes. But other than that, everything else in creation is good. Now, the gifts of God are to be received by his people with thankfulness. The correct response is not to reject God's good gifts, but to receive them gladly. Imagine this scene. It's one of my daughter's birthdays, and uh, her mom and I, we... Saved up, and we've got her this super awesome gift, whatever it might be. And on her birthday, we're so excited to give it to her. We've, we've been so antsy and nervous about it. We know she's going to love it. We give her the gift. She unwraps it, and she looks at it. And then she says to us, Mom and Dad, in order to show you how much I love you, I'm going to reject this gift. I'm, I'm going to give, that's how you'll know I love you, is if I give this back to you. I know you, you got it for me, you, you want me to have it, but I'll show you that I love you by giving it back to you. That doesn't communicate love. That's not what the relationship between parent and child is like. I want to give you good things. It delights me to give you good things. And it delights me for you to receive them and to play with them more than just on Christmas Day or on your birthday, <laughs> and, and to clean up the glitter mess that you leave behind. I want you to enjoy these things. That brings me joy. So when God's people are told, you've got to reject these things in order to show God that you love him, there's a disconnect. It doesn't make sense. God has created these things that are good for us to enjoy. So Paul's warning is important to us. We don't want to follow teaching that obscures the goodness of God. What would we say are some modern equivalents of this? Here in chapter 4, we've got this really specific set of false teaching. Some of the details we know, others we don't. But what would we say is a a modern equivalent of what we find in the false teaching of chapter 4? I'll I'll point to one example that I think resonates with us locally. Uh, And that would be New Age spirituality and its prominence around the South Shore. Um, I heard recently of of a spiritual healer here on the South Shore, and some of her practices include, uh, with her client in the room, she seals the room in divine light, and then she identifies curses that the person is carrying, and she removes those curses and puts them in a mason jar. You can either make pickles or contain curses, Who knew that ball mason jars were so versatile? I had no clue. Uh, 
those types of practices are not benign curiosities. They are deceiving spirits taught by demons. And the goodness of God is obscured when a spiritual healer says, oh, child of God, you have a curse on you. Friend, the curse has been lifted. Jesus Christ ate that curse at the cross. I don't care what your business card says or how many chakras you identify. I'm free by faith in Jesus Christ. Do not give your life to anything that obscures the goodness of God. Run from it. It is satanic through and through. So friends, don't dabble in demonic teaching, but rather enjoy the goodness of God. Drink good coffee with gratefulness. Enjoy a sunset. Rejoice in guacamole. (laughs) Praise God for your family. Read great books. Worship as you garden. These things are very good. That's what God says, Genesis chapter 1. Looks at his creation. It is very good. Receive God's good creation with thankfulness. So if I were to ask you, how are Christians supposed to conduct themselves, how would you answer? I'd hope you'd look here to the end of chapter 3, start of chapter 4, and you'd say, look, we are to live our lives to display the gospel, and we're to watch out for anything that hides the goodness of God. In other words, Paul's told us that God wants us to share the gospel and enjoy his goodness. It's just that simple. That's the sermon in one sentence. Share the gospel, enjoy God's goodness. You may be familiar with a man named John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley and his brother Charles were founders of the Methodist Church, and they were tremendous evangelical leaders in the 1700s. Before Wesley came to faith in Jesus, he was a better Christian than many believers, at least as far as his outward behavior was concerned. During his time in college, before he's a believer, during his time in college, he helped start a group called the Holy Club. And the students in the club went to church and studied their Bibles, and they fasted, and they prayed, and they went into prisons and did evangelism. They provided food and clothing and education for poor children of the city, yet the whole time John Wesley was a spiritual orphan in bondage to his own religiosity, his own moral code. It wasn't until years later that Wesley finally came to trust in Christ only for his salvation. And as he looked back on everything he had done for God before he came to Christ, he wrote this, I had the faith of a servant, but not that of a son. You are sons and daughters of the living God who appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. So share the gospel and enjoy his goodness. And these will be sure signs that you remember who you are. Let's pray together. Lord God, for your grace to us, we praise you for your 
faithfulness to us. We praise you for the gift of salvation that is ours through faith in Christ. We praise you. Lord, everything that you have given us is good and we thank you for the abundance of your gifts. I pray this morning for any of my friends in here that may have put morality before faith. Lord, would you help them to hear you clearly this morning that you have made a way for them through your son and would you open their eyes soften their consciences that they would trust in Christ today for their salvation God I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who may be racked by uh, a legalism that produces guilt upon guilt Lord God show them the freedom that they have in Christ that they would enjoy all the good things you've given them, that their days would be marked by happiness in you and not a false asceticism that results in no amount of holiness. God, I pray that above all, we would be a church of the living God who serves as a pillar and foundation of the truth, that we would bear witness to that truth and we would protect that truth in purity. Let us know that we are godly people in a godly church by our witness. Not just by good intentions, not just by being kind people and hoping someone catches a whiff of the gospel. Give us boldness in our speech that we would speak the name of Christ and tell of the cross and tell of the empty tomb and we would call people to believe. Lord, give us boldness and courage in our witness. Because there are lives here whom you have marked as yours. And there is praise that awaits you here on the South Shore and beyond. So let us be your people, living in your truth, sharing the gospel, enjoying your goodness in the lives you've given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.